Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. On this uh, episode of the Cato podcast, we wanted to talk about tactical teams use during public venue events, which we've talked about before, but uh, it's an ever evolving deal and it's always challenging. But rather than talk about it from a planner's only perspective or from a higher rank perspective, we asked Austin to join Travis and I to discuss it from an operator's perspective. And I would like to take a moment to thank two Cato Gold sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. Thank you to NAG Industries and Aardvark Tactical. NAG Industries is a premier provider for a variety of government sales products like Vortex Optics, Garmin, Streamlight, and many other brands. From breaching tools and training to the latest in pickleball gear, there's a good chance NAG Industry carries it. Check them out at nagindustries.com. I would also like to thank Aardvark Tactical, who's been a steadfast supporter for many years. While Aardvark is famous for their signature Project 7 scalable plate carrier system, Sejin Robot, Low-Key Drone, and Kinetic Breaching Tool, they also offer customized integrated solutions to meet a wide variety of supply needs, such as complete crowd control kits, IED detection, less lethal, and many others. To learn more, check out aardvarktactical.com. Work-life balance is something we all struggle with in our line of work, and especially with the people who listen to this podcast. For those of you who enjoy getting away by spending some time on the lake, casting a line, our podcast sponsor is for you. Cope's Tackle and Rod Shop has been in business since 2015 and carries all of your fishing needs. They are veteran-owned and are proud supporters of Cato and our listeners of the Cato podcast. Check out their website at tackleandrod.com, enter discount code Cato at checkout, and get 10% off your purchase and get free shipping on anything over $75. Cato is a nonprofit organization that exists to serve law enforcement so they can train their departments and make their communities safer. One of the ways we do this is through support from businesses like Cope's Tackle and Rod. So consider supporting businesses that support us. Austin, uh, thanks for being here with us. If you could tell uh, everybody listening uh, a little bit about yourself. And then we'll kind of get into the historical uh, overview of things. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. So I have uh, 18 years of law enforcement experience. Uh, I started a smaller agency in the Bay Area and did that for about five years. And then I lateraled to a major metropolitan department uh, in the Bay Area where I've been for the past uh, 13 years. And past 10 years, I've been on our uh, tactical team, which is a full-time assignment. So uh, it's, I've gotten to see kind of both sides of a part-time team, uh, and a full-time team, kind of what both those environments offer. And your agency has your particular, uh, tactical team involved in a variety of large scale public events. Yes. Yeah. Our, our city sees, I mean, everything you can think of from stuff that's happening, uh, on the Bay to large races, large concerts, you know, as, uh, pretty much as big as they, they can get. And the major city. Yeah. And in those 18 years, we've seen that, that evolve uh, a lot. And uh, you and I are similar in uh, age. I'm a little bit older than you, but thank God I'm a little better looking. And uh, <laughs> I just thought I'd slide that into an audio podcast so no one can prove me wrong. Uh, but, but we've seen that evolution, right? So at minimum, it was maybe a react team. And then we had some events take place 
probably the most recent uh, event in everyone's mind is Las Vegas, but there were several other uh, key events that kind of started teams uh, in the state of California and around the country going, there's a better way to do this. And uh, we need to be a little more robust. So uh, Trav, what are a couple of the key ones that we saw that started people in in the United States going, you know what, we better start learning from this stuff because it's coming our way. Well, for me personally, and having talked to a few people, you know, across the country, it was really the Bataclan incident uh, really got me thinking about, hey, we're not, I wouldn't even say doing a good job. We're not doing any anything to protect our public venue events. And I think it really hit home for me when they had the French soccer bombings and, and how those were unique was those bombings, those explosive incidents happened outside the venue. They couldn't penetrate security. They couldn't get inside. And so it really got me thinking about, hey, we need to have our tactical team doing overwatch and protecting the best that we can, these adversarial events. And I got a lot of pushback because at the time, the leadership in my agency was very much of the mindset that, well, this will never happen here. And I think a lot of you out there have probably encountered this mindset. And I would tell you that these are predictable surprises. And there's a great book on that called Predictable Surprises, if you get a chance to read it. And what I mean by predictable surprise, it's 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 almost like 9-11. We actually knew 9-11 was coming. And we, I mean, the FBI, other agencies knew what was occurring. It's predictable, but then we get surprised when it's happened. And if you look back at the, you know, they're almost gray rhinoceroses now. Uh, if you look back at that book as well, I would say the mindset that you need to adopt is more of the, it could happen here. And how do we prepare for that? Because the last thing you want is your agency to be the one that has having after action reports written about them because they didn't prepare for an event that they knew was a predictable surprise. And I would ask Austin on this at the operator level, because I'm at the, I'm at the command level, either as an incident commander or the SWAT commander is how are you guys, if, if anything, I, I don't know, how are you guys preparing at your level for an active shooter that occurs in a crowd? How, where, you know, how do we, and I don't want to give away trade secrets here, but I see a lot of issues coming with where do we place our armor, right? If I'm placing my armor in the middle of a crowd, are we ever really going to get there? If I'm placing it outside the crowd, are we ever really going to get there? Are we talking about UC components? Are we talking about overt or covert deployment? Um, which is best? Pros, cons, because we all know that tactics are context dependent. What works in one set of circumstances doesn't work in another. And so I would really ask, you know, I, I'm curious to hear Austin's viewpoint from his lens on what he thinks about all that. Yeah, let me. So you brought up the the Botacon and the other. Uh, what came to my mind for my agency and, and our team was, uh, I believe, it was 2016 when the five Dallas officers were shot and killed, and that was the catalyst for our team to kind of re, you know, reapproach how we deal with large you know events public events large venues you know open space open air type of events um you know our team is kind of unique when it comes to a tactical team because 
we are shopped out to do more than just your what you think a SWAT team would do. We're, we used to be very heavy in the crowd control element of our city. And that that's just kind of from the birth of the unit. It was a, it was a, uh, a utility unit. They were used for, you know, jump out and stuff back in the day, back in the 70s and the 80s. And then they were used as a, as a crime suppression unit. And, and then they were used as a SWAT team in addition to crowd control. And they did undercover stuff. And so it's, it's evolved. Um, but some of those still kind of remain. So up until 2016, we were heavy into crowd control. After the Dallas event, we kind of reapproached, you know, how we handle this. And that kind of gave birth to now we have cat teams, counter assault teams that for any of these big, large scale events, that's kind of our standard, uh, deployment. And those can vary in how many members per cat team, how many cat teams we have. And you know, how they're deployed, depending on, you know, the size of the event, um, number of people, time of day, time of year, our staffing. Um, so there's a lot of variables. And I know uh, we might get into uh, the matrix. There's a, you know, there's a matrix uh, in regards to events like this, much like there's a matrix for um, operations, search warrant service and whatnot. But the 2016 was the, that was the, the catalyst for us to change kind of how we do things. And Austin, are you guys doing any, you know, as far as cat teams go, are you got, what, what type of training without giving away too much, obviously, are you guys training specifically for, you know, an active shooter or a bomber or a vehicle attack or what, what are you doing as far as that type of training and education goes? So uh, go down the line, basically our cat teams, the shift went from reactive, I guess, and just kind of being stationary to mobility. I guess the best way to put it was the cat teams are now, uh, we changed our kit. We went from uh, our, you know, our daily patrol vest to a plate carrier style vest for the cat team guys. Uh, the emphasis was now on being able to have a breaching element in case we now had a breach doors for active shooter going to certain buildings. So that was kind of the goal was the training shifted to mobility, being able to react as a single cat team of three or maybe a four man cat team and be able to react to a situation and breach something and get to the problem as a self-contained unit as opposed to waiting for an entire stick or, you know, eight guys, 10 guys, 12 guys. So active shooter training, it was, more of we would drill it as we would drive around in the cars and we would basically do like a semi-live training with we would send guys out into the city they would drive around in their cars and we'd reserve a radio channel and the training there was one of the training would come on the air and say hey this is what you got here's the location and you'd arrive at your problem and you may have to run 15 yards you may have to run 50 yards you may go upstairs you may not have stairs but it was testing that reactionary you know, to reactionary gather, you might have to the problem and then working the problem and thing, you know, and then kind of looking at evaluating like, Hey, what worked, what didn't. Um, Cause we found that being mobile around a footprint of an event is, was more effective than having everybody at, you know, a command post and just kind of waiting to go out. Or like we used to was that we would just be in the crowd, kind of an overt thing where you'd be walking through the crowd. And we had incidents where we had a, uh, a number of shootings at festivals where we we're trying to fight through people to get and if you're in the middle of the chaos uh as opposed to being outside and, and being able to move you kind of can pinpoint where you need to react to 
and where you need to respond. So you're, you're talking about building some flexibility into that response and then pushing decision-making down so that you're not just in a staging area waiting for centralized decision-making to then deploy. And uh, I like the idea. You kind of look at those big events and you're in their crowd. Those Whoever the guys are working it, they're probably not going to get to the problem. Everyone's going to run away from it if it's really bad or run to it. <clears throat> And either way, that's a density issue that you might not be able to fight through versus a small little little teams that can penetrate in directly to where they're going. So I, I like that idea. That's kind of your active shooter deal. But you, you also have, you know, the other threats. We talk about vehicle attacks or Travis kind of brought up the explosives outside the event because they can't get inside. And, and that that model actually allows you to be flexible and train for all those events, huh? Yeah, and I was gonna next touch on the vehicle attacks. And we, I mean, what we've done as far as the input we have to people who are um, running the event, organizing the event, is you know we can make suggestions based off of what we think works, what we know will work, or past events. You know, so that includes like, hey, the placement of barricades. What kind of barricades are we using? I mean, we've kind of evolved as well because. At one point, we were using public works trucks and sand trucks and dump trucks and whatever we could to, you know, to kind of hinder anyone's attempts at getting something in. So it just kind of happened where the department really started leaning on our unit to kind of, you know, give us or give them our input uh, when we had really hadn't been asked before. And so then all of a sudden, they kind of started recognizing, oh, maybe you guys you know, are the experts when it comes to our department, but you guys are the ones that we want to hear from. So it, it was nice to kind of have that shift where we were a little more involved in what's going on because, you know, at the end of it, they're, they're the ones asking us to react to the worst of the worst. So having our input is kind of nice to, to it's kind of nice to be heard, I guess. <laughs> and I got two questions for you, Austin. One is, you know, equipment wise, you guys are running and, you know, running plate carriers and, and changing the equipment around based on the mission, which I'm a big fan of. What type of breaching equipment are you bringing with you, right? Are you bringing explosives to the fight? You're bringing KBTs? Are you just bringing manual tools? What do you guys have as far as that goes? And then my other question is, are the incident commanders, because you and I had a conversation recently, uh, you know, where an IC asked you to come and do something that was outside your norm. Do your incident commanders or those that are going to be making these calls, do they know that should one of these incidents pop off, that you're going to be addressing the shooter, you're going to be breaching, you're going to be doing these things, and are they comfortable with you guys? Because as we know, a lot of that has to do with trust, and I didn't mean to ask a multi-pronged question there, but um, I think that's one of the places when I've evaluated these incidents, as far as active shooters go, is incident commanders have a huge problem with trusting those that are at the crisis site and aligning that decision-making authority with the situational awareness that those guys on scene have. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, well, to start with the, the first question is uh, for the cat teams, the reactionary teams are basically going to have manual tools. We put together these little, these little slim backpacks that's got basically your Halligan sledge. One guy's responsible for the Ram. Um, and usually there's at least one, if not more guys that has a ballistic on him uh, when he's riding around. So that's your, that's your reactionary uh, tools. You know, we've got bolt cutters. All, all our cars have those. 
and all the backpacks have those initial uh, tools that you use, the manual tools. We do have KBT, we do have explosives, uh, we have uh, exothermic capabilities, but those are, those are, as you know, heavier pieces of gear, uh, maybe not reactive pieces of gear initially, um, but we have those available to us. And kind of going along with the mobility as we started moving our armor from our tactical operations building to a hub downtown. So we have everything a lot closer in case we have to go get it or it has to be deployed. It's, it's a lot closer. So we have to fight through, you know, city traffic to get it there, which is, you know, we do these things and you think about it, like, why didn't we do this years ago? It makes so much sense. Why is, you know, why, again, reactive, why are we doing this now? But, uh, um, and then as far as uh, I believe you talked about, you asked as far as being asked to do something that was different or didn't really follow the mission or uh, I think, plan. I think it's just, you know, do the incident commanders understand mm. the, make a shrimp, explain this, right. The autonomy that you guys are going to be exercising when you are pursuing someone who is perhaps barricaded behind a door or perhaps has captives or hostages, or are they going to be okay with that? I mean, you might not know because I, I'm sure like us, you know, your incident commander could be somebody who hasn't been an incident commander in a long time. Do you guys do anything? You might not even know this, have conversations with him on them on the front end to be like, Hey, if this happens, we're going to do this. Just, just because those friction points are what we're running into at a lot of these events. So we, uh, we have run into that, not just for large events, but for everyday stuff for planned operations, because the way we're structured is I've been at our unit for a little over 10 years and our, you know, our tactical commanders are lieutenants and we usually staff with two of them and, but they, they get rotated out. So it's not like you get a lieutenant and they're there as long as they want to be. Sometimes they're there for a year maybe two, sometimes three, and then they they get rotated out for whatever reason, or they promote. So I've seen my fair share of lieutenants uh, at our unit over the past 10 years. And with those come different personalities. But what we found is, is the, the, the key, I think, to making them aware of our capabilities and, and building that trust so they can let us, you know, let us work and make decisions and they don't have to necessarily I guess we worried about it is education and that's, you know, at, at our level, inviting them to trainings, say, Hey, come here, watch our capabilities, watch us do explosive breaching, watch us do manual breaching, watch us do maritime, watch us do this, come to the tabletop exercises. So they can see that decision-making, you know, you know, play out. They can see actually work and that builds that trust and they get to know the capabilities of their unit that way when they have to, for lack of a better term, pitch, a tactical plan or an operation or anything to you know, hire brass, they have that confidence to know, uh, you know, what our capabilities are. And so, but that knowing that capability, it changes with the individual. There's that human factor that some people are just built where they want to control things more. Some people are built where they don't want to be in charge for the most part. They just want to be, Hey, you guys do your thing. I'm just going to stand back here and let you guys make decisions. So there's always that variable that we get. Um, but yeah, for the most part, we're, we've passed probably seven years. We've really tried to push 
the education, the involvement piece as far as like, hey, we want we want you to know what we do. That way you trust what we do. And hopefully it makes our tactical commander's job a little easier. I mean, that's what, what the goal is. Yeah. Get that confidence. Right. And it's all about that trust piece, I think. Um, one of the other questions I had was, are you guys involving Thames, your TAC medics in these events? And if so, how are you integrating them in? Do you have, you know, for me, when I write plans for these large scale events, I always have pre-staged uh, casualty collection points, contingency CCPs, all of those things, evacuate, you know, et cetera, et cetera. How are you guys working those, those assets into your planning and implementation phases? We uh, we just started implementing uh, our Thames medics, uh, not into our stack for operations and critical incidents, but we've brought them a lot closer uh, to now where we can have them in the armor or at a you know at a uh, um, we call it the LTC last covering concealment an LTC location of pretty much right on top of us. Um, before that, they were staged in an ambulance and they were at the command post. So you had that response time from us asking for the ambulance to the commander sending them out to the casualty collection point wherever that was designated. So we've brought them closer to us. Um, and that also goes for these large uh, public events as far as, um, you know, we will have one stage at the command post with Lieutenant, but now we're starting to implement our TEMS teams and have one or two of them uh, even in the cars with a cat team. Um, it's been kind of a struggle to get to that point because, you know, you're dealing with two houses. You get the fire side and the police side and the, the, the Thames, the fire guys themselves who are in the Thames program are all about it. They're, that's why they're there. They want to be there to help out. And they know that there is some inherent risk. Um, and, you know, I, I love having them with us because, it's just an extra, you know, just the security blanket for us. It feels like, hey, we can something bad does happen, help us that much closer. Um, and not necessarily for us. It, it could be a mass casualty incident. Having medics there on top of us with them at the time is just it's a, it's a bonus for us. So yeah, we're starting it's to a force them. multiplier. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and I well, like your. Uh, I think. Uh, that's a twofold deal, right? And you brought this up. You, you might have not said it this way, so correct me if I'm if I misheard you. But you have them uh, as close as you can, so they can provide medical care and start triaging. But the the other bonus is they're going to start directing traffic. You know, they're going to start directing medical resources uh, appropriately. And when you use Thames guys to do it, if you can afford to then it's almost like a USAR event where they're coordinating everything else that needs to get done because there's their competing interests, right? We have to find the bad guys, keep them from hurting more people, but at the same time, start, start saving people's lives so that they can't hurt, you know, continue to hurt those people. And so that unified command, even at the lowest level with Thames and the initial responders just reduces that friction because now I have an air traffic controller, from medical side that is handling all of that triage, staging, notifications, all that stuff that your tactical commander now doesn't have to do. It, it changes kind of because a lot of these events, you know, no matter how police heavy they may, may be at the beginning, an active shooter or shooting, they basically all end up being 
a medical emergency. And I don't know how many times I've been to small and bigger scale things where that, that's the majority of it turns into casualty care and triaging. And, and the, so the more hands we can have in that and the more experts to, to help us do that is, 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 is great to have. I got a couple more things. Are you guys doing long rifle overwatch, sniper overwatch? Yes. So our, again, our, our unit is, is an anomaly, I guess, when it comes to tactical units. Our, our snipers are not part of our tactical team. Our containment team is a separate entity, uh, like a rifle team. It's an auxiliary position. So I think right about now we're sitting at about 70 to 80, I think. Uh, and they are officers that can work patrol or sergeants that are on patrol or work uh, an investigative position. And it's auxiliary, so they're activated as a as a perimeter team uh, for like, like a planned event. They'll be planned. Hey, you're scheduled to be containment for this operation uh, on a critical incident or something spontaneous. Uh, they basically will do an all, all call for the city, and if they are working, they'll answer up and they'll switch over to their containment team, and they'll respond. They carry their stuff in their car with them on mm-hmm. patrol, and they'll respond. And if they they need more, they'll be supplemented with uh, their own on-call people that are, that are off. So that element, uh, and they're all rifle trained. They're all, uh, less lethal trained. They work in pairs, containment's their, their thing. And so our snipers are attached to them. I, I'm not, I forget how many we have, but that there, our sniper team is attached to them. Okay. But yeah, and what, sorry to answer you. Sorry, Travis, to answer you, yes. On all these major events, big events, we have overwatch. They are on, they're on rooftops. They're up, uh, hours before we're there and they're they're spotting they're looking at places that they should sit they're looking at places where people could could be and there are eyes for throughout the event whether it be the you know movement through a crowd the number of crowd the size activity and uh, identifying individuals that you know let's say you know say hey someone's going through the crowd was wearing you know black hat red red hoodie you know there there are eyes when we can't see what's going on okay and then we kind of touched on the matrix and I'm just going to give my thought on the whole matrix issue is it's not a bad thing. I know Mark Lang, a retired Dallas PD sniper works for TAC flow. He's got one. I'm not opposed to it. I would just say we, and again, having not conversations with people across the country about matrices, we can't have a dogmatic adherence to that, to that matrix. There is always context. It might fit all the check boxes. And we still might not do it, and it might not fit all the check boxes, and we might do it. As long as you have articulable information to help you justify why you made that decision. And I've seen, I, I don't remember if it's that matrix or another one, but it says it, you know, one of the deciding factors is the size of the crowd. And I kind of disagree with that because you could have an event that is controversial in nature that has 500 people at it. And your threshold's a thousand, and well, we're not going to go to it. Well, just I would just caution everybody to not pay attention to just your crowd size. Pay attention to the other factors that are at play when you look at that specific event as to whether or not you're going to deploy your team assets to those. And look, you can scale how many of you guys you send on your team. It doesn't have to be a full team callout. You can scale that that piece, and I'm sure Austin can attest to that. 
one of the things, Austin, that you know you shared a story that that bears some talking about is when you guys were called in for crowd control on a certain incident. I don't want to give too much away, but can you touch on that a little bit? Because I think it, it's important to talk about these friction points that happen when your team is at one of these events and then suddenly something pops off that doesn't really fit your mission profile and you're suddenly called to it. How do we mitigate that from happening or can we even do that? Because I think like you said, a lot of times our teams are just looked at as an auxiliary. We can plug us in anywhere and we'll get the problem solved. Most of the time that's true, but um, there is some inherent risks with having that mindset. Yeah. And it's, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, we're, we're kind of in that weird position where we still are expected to do crowd control and do these other things aside from just your, I guess what you call it, typical special operations stuff. Um, but yeah, that event was, uh, it was a big parade for a uh, professional sports team. And so there was thousands and thousands and thousands of people. It was a very, very large event, large scale event. And our mission was, uh, was cat team was basically, and we knew that we, we had, uh, you know, we had, I think a week prior heard about what was going on. We were going to be counter assault. So for us, counter assault was mobility. It's, you know, three, four man teams. Uh, and we kind of divide when we do cat stuff. Usually we divide the footprint of what's going on into either a grid or sectors. And each cat team has their own sectors that they're supposed to float within. And they're not set in stone, but that's the, we, we don't get sucked into one thing. You know, we like to, you know, depending on the scale and what, what the event is or what the incident is, if something happens, obviously it's just like a beat or a sector that cat teams are responding to it. And, you know, another cat team can assist, but we don't want everyone always going to one spot because we know sometimes the initial attack is not the only attack. So that's kind of how we divide that up. And so that's the mission. And so understanding the mission is, you know, I'm a big fan of saying the right tool for the job. So if, hey, you want your, your SWAT team, you know, we're a full-time team. We train for, for everything we can think of, and this is the mission, right? And so we're, we're there. We're looking at maps. We're looking at terrain, and we're wearing a specific kit for that. So during the parade, they lost, basically lost crowd control on the parade route, and they started getting people flooding the parade route. And then because we are the crowd control experts for our department, uh, we were asked to basically go into the parade route and help handle crowd control. And, you know, for people who are familiar with it, is you don't want to be uh, on the front lines or in large crowds when you're wearing, you know, a plate carrier that's got magazines and flashbang devices and chem agents and all and your rifles. It's, it's not a, it's a recipe for disaster when it comes to crowd control. And, uh, and it's not how we work. If we are assigned specific crowd control, we have a different soft vest kit. We have, you know, our gloves, we have different crowd control helmets. It's a different animal, different mission. So, you know, we, we, we made it work. We had to take our time to switch gear out and you know, we, we couldn't react as fast as we would have liked to and maybe been as organized. And it was, you know, we had some gripes about it because a lot of our guys were the mindset that this was the mission and yes, we have to be flexible, but think about the, you know, with always the, what could happen. We 
switched to crowd control. And now we're in the middle of this giant crowd. And then the big event happens, the big attack happens, something happens. And now your entire reaction team is buried. And so that's what crosses people's minds. And, you know, uh, we were kind of confused as far as does the, and I don't know if this was our, uh, I, we never really debriefed that, uh, that decision. Um, but, you know, I was curious, well, where did it, did it come from our lieutenant? I don't think it did. I think it came from higher up, someone who's probably unfamiliar with the capabilities or, you know, maybe they weren't thinking of the what ifs. And that's, you know, that's something that me being an officer, I'm not privy to a lot of those conversations that happen way up there. You know, lieutenant, captain, uh, you know, commanders or any of the chiefs. So, I, I, you know, I don't know how to, I get stuck in that position of, I don't know how to fix that. I want to address it because I'm curious, not because I'm critical. But it's like, it goes back to the education piece. Like, hey, maybe the higher up doesn't understand what it takes to do you know, mission A as opposed to mission B. So it's like that. I feel like there's an ego thing sometimes where you're asking questions, especially as an officer asking anybody of rank, you know, why do we do this? What about this? Do we consider this? It's not, at least in my case, it's not an attack on that person's decision-making. It's hey, maybe it's an education thing, or I'm curious for myself because I'm always trying to learn what was your thought process on this? And maybe, maybe you, as someone who has a bigger picture, knew more details that I didn't know about. And that's why you decided to make that decision. So well, uh, I can, we made it work. Yeah. I can, can I tell need- you it's all about delivery, right? If I have, I don't mind people question. And in fact, you should, as a, as a commander of anything, you should invite people's questions. However, your delivery matters. And if, and if any, you know, if somebody feels like they're being attacked in the delivery, that's, you know, it's that human factor that you were talking about, but here's, this is my take. And I don't mean to cut you off Marcus, but, if I were at the line level and I was a TL and I had, let's say how many cat, you know, he, let's say, I'm not going to ask you how many you have, but let's say I have five cat teams. They want all those cat teams to go do crowd control. I, as a TL, I'm going to make the call that one of those cat teams is being held in reserve simply to mitigate exactly what you're talking about. Because when you and I first, when you first told me that story, I'm like, well, we're in a little bit of a, a trouble here if we do have some type of adversarial event that pops off while we're out dealing with the crowd because you just can't pull yourself out of a crowd control situation put your kit back on and then go deal with somebody who's you know initiating a dallas type event right so i think for me my fix would be a tl has to have the gumption to make that call and then they can come around back with it on the back end and say hey i held them in reserve and here's why as long as they have Look, you can violate policy as long as you have you can justify it. Not that they were violating policy, but and it's not insubordinate either. It's just we have to prepare for this event. You can't take all of our all of our assets from us. Well, so. it's it's intel driven, right? So in this case, we might not have the intel, but the risk is so great that if it does happen, if a Dallas type event happens, we can't, we can't discount it. Right. So you have to put something in reserve just in case, just because the risk is so great, no matter what the Intel says. And then the other thing I remember, uh, I worked for a leader once who is, who, uh, was actually pretty patient, but he didn't come off that way. And he goes, why are you always questioning me? And I said, look, I, I think you misunderstand where I'm coming from. I go, I'm not questioning your authority. So there's two things here. Either I'm going to keep you from driving the, the 
the lemmings off the cliff, or you're going to explain it to me and I'll be more in line with what you're trying to accomplish. So either way, this is a good conversation as long as I'm respectful. And I go, so it's actually not me questioning your ability. It's I don't understand kind of the, I know what success looks like the end state, but I don't understand the framework that you're making your decisions in. Cause to me, it looks like this. So if you're wrong, great chance for you to course correct. If I'm wrong, a great chance for you to educate me, but either way, when we're done, we'll be more efficient in how we operate. And he looked at me and said, I appreciate the metaphor. Now go back and do your job. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, that's kind of how you have, you have to create that culture. Right. And, and then most agencies are just like yours, Austin, whereas every year and a half to two years that changes and you got to rebuild it all over again. Occasionally, you know, you get somebody that comes up through your ranks and comes back to the team. And so you can shorten that language a little bit, but things change so much that, you know, some of the biggest challenges I had were leaders that had been on tactical teams, but it was 10 years ago. And so it was like, Hey, I get it, but that's, we can't do any of that stuff anymore. You know? Yeah. We, it's funny because you touched on uh, Travis talk about the matrix and I'm, I'm currently in the middle of trying to change our, our matrix for plant operations uh, when it comes to mainly for arrest warrant, search warrant service type stuff. Cause I know this, this crowd matrix that we, that we talked about was an article. It's a numbered matrix, which I personally am not a fan of. And I'm trying to, trying to switch us over to a matrix that most other agencies that have matrixes use, which is more of a, you know, it's basically explaining in more detail why you're doing this, why you're doing that. Because the argument for me on those matrix numbers is, you know, if the matrix is a certain score and they say, we'll give you this many points for this factor. It's like, how do I defend that? How do I explain that in core when I didn't create the matrix? I don't know why that that's the value is at that point. I don't know. You know, so I'm trying to get us away from that. So I, I noticed that in the article, it mentioned that the, you know, it's time points and I'm kind of in line with you as far as I, I don't, I'm not worried about the point. I'm more worried about the specific details for every, for every venue, every event is specific because it's a different footprint, it's the size, it's weather, it's what is the event, you know, there's so many specifics that go to it that you can't just matrix an event and be like, yep, that's what we're going to do. We're going to deploy a SWAT team for this or not. Yeah, I think think we forget the purpose of the matrix, right? The, The purpose of the matrix is so that we can justify the resources we're allocating based upon whatever intel we have at the time. That's all uh-huh. it's for. And it's not going to fit everything. And uh, I don't, I don't like numbers for anything. So I, I agree with you on that just because they're arbitrary. So I don't want to fight about them. Um, but any matrix is better than no matrix at all, because then we're just winging it. So the matrix to me is more like a, Hey, did we cover all these things? Do we have all this information? And does the size of our solution fit the size of the problem? And, uh, and that's always the problem with some of the events we talked about today is you don't get credit for preventing them. Right. And so everybody has the same problem. We, we look at Vegas, everybody deploys and then nothing happens. And so like, well, do we really need all this? Could we lower it down? Especially if we're working with private companies that run these big events because they have to pay the city. 
And so they're like, look, if we do this the way you said, we won't make any profit. We'll actually lose money. And so there's always that balance in, in leadership. And this isn't, you know, the, t- the topic of the podcast, but it comes down to us as operators because we're like, hey, we want more people, more equipment. This is the safest way and we know how. But then we're not often given the resources to handle that. And that sometimes that might be our leadership's fault, but a lot of times it's you know a lot bigger issue than that. I cut you off, Trav. What do you have to say? No, just the numbers, there's no you already hit on it. There's no scientific basis for those. They're non-defensible. So I, I've there are a lot of people that still use them. And I've 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 had some success in getting a lot of people to change them simply because I've you know, let me, let's go through a civil defense of your matrix. And what is number, why is that a five? And this is a 10. Can you explain that to me? And they're, well, not really. I go, okay, well, you got this, you know, off of what Marcus calls bro science and that stuff just doesn't fly. So, um, I'm glad a lot more people are realizing that now. That's it. Yeah. Any other thoughts, uh, Austin, how about how about this? When we're talking about public venue events, which, you know, we, we covered active shooter, some vehicle attacks. We, we referred to kind of explosive attacks, but our response is very similar, you know, to all those events. Um, what has changed for you? Because you've been around a little while now and you get a lot of reps in this particular area. What are some of the things that change for you? I'm throwing you a curveball here, but like in the beginning of this, and now that you've done this for a while and we've seen the evolution, what are things now you're like, man, I never thought we'd be doing this, or I never thought we'd talk about this, or we'd get this? Um, you know, the thing that comes to mind, the things that I didn't think about when I first started doing this stuff was talking about active shooter, but, you know, the active attacker. That's, you know, it's always every scenario for a long time was always. It's, you know, it's the active shooter. It's the guy with the gun. It's the person with a gun. We're running to the gunfire. But when you have an event like someone with an edged weapon where you, you, all you have to go off is is the crowd, really. If someone's telling you, hey, they're over there, but you have just people screaming and everybody running. If you've never been in a, a large crowd where there are very few indicators of what's going on, like you, you keep in mind, like you don't have radio traffic. There's no, there's no reporting party telling you what's going on. And people are running and screaming and you may or may not have, you know, witnesses or victims that are telling you what's going on. And then it's complete chaos. So I think responding to that, that the, you know, active attacker, uh, it's not something that I ever uh, really thought about um, as far as another element to, you know, these, these large public venue uh, incidents. And then I, you know, I guess it's just a, it's part of its experience as far as, you know, playing that what if game in your head because I, I conversation that Travis and I had uh, a while back was it, it applies through patrol through any assignment. It's that what if game. You know, we always want to be playing the what if game. What if I did this? What if what if I what if the suspect did this? You know, you, you want to try to mentally prepare yourself as best you can to react and and, and do that. And that's you know, the, in the special operations world, that's that's a big deal. And I would imagine that that your guys' level even more because you're involved planning and resources. You're trying to think ahead to get ahead of that kind of stuff. And we do as, as operators, we do as well. And so I think not necessarily things that I didn't think we'd be doing, but what what's changed for me since 
the my very first year on on a team as opposed to now is the that what if that preparedness uh, at an individual level and what i'm thinking of now like when we do these mass events now i'm thinking of you know intel for the rest of my guys like the everyone does everyone have you know, not only, yeah, we've been to the brief and you know, we'll do a brief back on people's assignments and, and whatnot. That's, that's something they should do. But it's also, hey, making sure that each each of my cars, do they have the map? Do they have the grid map? Do we have extra comms? Do we have extra batteries? Do we have it's other stuff that as a new, younger operator, you're not necessarily thinking about that. I know I wasn't. I was thinking about, oh, I'm going to run to the gunfire. I want to be the first one through the door. And and, uh, you know, I still have that. I, still, I that's why I do this. I, I want to be that, that person. That's me. But as I gotten older, it, you think of, well, there's, there's so many other elements to it that can, you know, make or break something to make it a success or to save lives. And that's it's the other things that the planning, it's the Intel gathering, it's the other preparedness that, you know, it's not the the glamorous, I guess, the glamorous jobs, the glamorous responsibilities, but they're, they're, they're very important. And so, you know, I'd say I've gotten, I don't want to call it boring because it's not boring, but it's less glamorous, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, yeah. But, no one, no one uh, goes through, you know, testing for SWAT and SWAT school and FTO or whatever you have. And they're like, you know what I'm really fired up about is remembering an extra battery. Like I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm exactly. passionate. I'm passionate about that extra battery in my side <laughs> pocket. Right. Like that's not what, that's not what gets you going until you need the extra battery. Right. And that's uh, a little bit of uh, you know, age and wisdom. Right. So yeah. uh, very cool, man. I, I appreciate you taking the time. You know, these come up every few months when we talk about these big events and we've had, uh, you know, Mark's come out and taught all around the Bay area and, Uossi uh, puts on training uh, regularly up there for kind of hand on events in the Bay Area. Same with, same with LA. Same with San Diego. But we don't talk a lot about the operator's point of view and all the things that an operator can do to ensure they're successful. Especially if we're following that model, which I hope we are, where we're pushing that decision making down to increase that flexibility and the efficient response. So I appreciate your examples of that. And uh, everybody calls them something different, cat teams, tango teams. Like, but the, the point is uh, that old traditional model that was in the eighties and nineties, where we kind of are all staging in one spot and then we wait for our, you know, for our command. And then we go out there and now we're kind of more developing that situation as we go and logistics are following behind us as we call out what we need. So I appreciate that perspective. Trav, anything uh, or either one of you, anything before we go? No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Cato podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catotraining.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catotraining.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice. 